Support for today's show comes from Squarespace because it is 2018 or 19 or 20 or beyond. I don't know when you're listening, but you ought to have a website to show off yourself. Whatever you're writing, making, photographing, doing, be online, be in the future with the rest of us. And Squarespace is the perfect way to do it. No crazy coding skills required. You just put it together from a beautiful template and customize it to yourself. So head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save yourself 10% off a first purchase of a website or domain. With all the stresses of life, it can be easy to lose perspective on what really matters. But Heineken believes that life is about being with friends and opening yourself to new experiences because when you live spontaneously and embrace the unexpected, it's a chance to create new stories and connections. You just have to be open to it. So enjoy a refreshingly cold, full-bodied Heineken lager today with its deep golden color, light fruity aroma, mild bitter taste, and a crisp clean finish. Cheers. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also, just going to start with big personal news. I'm going to be a contestant on Jeopardy, the TV show. I'm going to be on there Monday, October 8th. That's a week from when this episode drops, if you're listening to it fresh. And... I'm just very excited about it. Man, I, I, I am excited about this episode this week, and I'll tell you all about it, but jeopardy.com slash watch to find out your station and time to see me on the show with, with Alex Trebek doing a lifelong dream. Very excited about it. Today's episode is neat, too. We've got Caitlin Gill and Riley Silverman, who are two fantastic comedians, and they're here to talk with me about fandom. And the overall thing we're getting into is how to be a better fan of the stuff you like because there's a way to do it and I think it's exciting. We will get into the way fandom can get very, very dark and very, very negative often, especially online today. But also we'll get into some stories of fans doing things you probably didn't even think were possible, um, putting themselves into their favorite pop culture, changing the course of it, connecting with the people running it. I think fandom has never been worse or better than it is right now. And we're going to look at everything from Doctor Who to the very beginnings of internet fandom to see why. So let's get you right into it. Please sit back or load up Jeopardy.com slash watch and make plans to see me uh, do the show. I don't know what else to say about it. It's just great. Anyway, enjoy this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Caitlin Gill and Riley Silverman. I will be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. We're talking about fandom today, and I, I know just from knowing you in life a bit what your favorite fandoms and things are, but like tell the tell the folks at home, what, what are the things you're most into pop culture-wise? I know you're yeah. a huge Doctor Who fan. Okay, yeah. Uh, Whovian? Whovian as well, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. I am, that, that is 100% accurate. I am a fan right? of Doctor Who and other stuff. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think my biggest and longest fanhood is Mystery Science Theater 3000, which as a fanhood is has a unique character. And I think that is goes a long way sure, to describe yeah. me. Odd, but very polite 
is the <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen the line well, of people hoping for a handshake or a hello at the end of a mystery science or riff tracks or cinematic titanic function but it is a very sweet shy ashamed line of people it, it does they yeah. are my, my stock so I, that's the fanhood I recognize in myself most closely the other thing I've been well, the fan of the longest is probably Calvin and Hobbes another very reclusive artist that wants to share nothing oh, with the man. world and I can't say I blame him my version of that is as far side I love Calvin yep. and Hobbes but I also have that like Gary Larson obsession oh yeah yeah Calvin <laughs> And Hobbes was what I loved more when I was younger because I related to Calvin so much. But then Farside, like as I got older and I got like really into like absurdist humor, like I thought that the tone of Farside was like so what I needed at the exact time in my life where yes. I like got really into it. Sure, they're pretty splendid. Yeah. Why, with I will both, say Simpsons they're, is another big fan. I'm a pretty big fan. Yeah, of Simpsons of course. Well, Simpsons, and then I'm I'm kind of into like basically anything super super nerdy. Like like if it's got if someone wears tights in it or someone like uses magic spells, I probably like it. So <laughs> this is where our perspectives will differ because I have a superhero aversion. I try not to, oh. and I do not fault any fan of any superhero. Love what you love, but I I'm bad at fantasy and I'm bad at hero stories, both of which have a devout fanhood. And I think they do, yeah. it's not but I think they'll be okay without you. Like, I, think I think they're think gonna be, be fine. fine. <laughs> and I'm not coming for them. No, I just think there's lots to appreciate about it. Like the perspective of devoting your life to it, which folks have done for fantasy and superhero stuff, the overwhelmingness of fanhood can be a little wild. I'm sure we're gonna talk about that as we move on. Uh, sure, and it's yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. Right? I say as I finger my TARDIS bag with a TARDIS makeup bag and TARDIS wallet <laughs> in it, with my Doctor <laughs> Who tattoo, and my, my Doctor Who earrings that I have on right now. <laughs> so I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, my Doctor Who cell phone in front of me. But <laughs> I don't know what you mean by that. It seems like a weird thing people to do. Well, as we look at that, like, well, there's all kinds of fandoms for us to talk about today. And, and of course, there's a range of fandom being dark or amazing, you know. But I'm, I'm really excited about people who, you know, they get so into the thing, they change the shape of it. And we've got a bunch of examples of it, which I think is fun. Yeah. Are you guys into Breaking Bad at all? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I've watched it. Yeah. Because I, I remember, like, tracking the ending of it and feeling like throughout the run of it, that's a show where they're really good at, like, paying off everything they wrote. Like, every time there was something coming, then it would end up, oh, the roots from season two means season five works. And this is basically the first show I've seen that does this, and it's yeah. very exciting. I also feel like Breaking Bad, I think it's the last great collective watching show that we had because now Maybe. so much stuff is streaming that people aren't necessarily all watching it together as it airs. Like, I know people who still don't know what happens at the end of the first season of The Good Place. And, like, <laughs> somehow people have collectively been cool about not spoiling it, which is great. But, yeah. like, it's coming into its third season and people still aren't watching it as it airs. Whereas, like, Breaking Bad was the one show, where, like, I mean, maybe Game of Thrones is the other one, but, like, a show where most people who are watching it are watching it together every week at a certain time and that's like a thing. I think you're right because it might be a, a tech thing too. Like I, most of Game of Thrones I've seen in a streaming fashion. Yeah. Either either with everybody else or not and then Breaking Bad I watched it on TV. Yeah. When it was happening. Yeah. It was a show too that I think didn't lend itself as well to binging because like it was a show you kind of needed that week break to be like I need to like take a breath. Yeah <laughs> sure. Oh my god. <laughs> and uh, as far as how they put it together it turns out that uh, this is from a cracked article. Six fan ideas so good they were adopted by the creators, by Amanda Manon. And it turns out there was a super fan of the show named Kevin Cordasco, who was 16 years old and a cancer patient. He had neuroblastoma. And he just got way in touch with the people running it because he was such a big fan. And there was enough internet that you could get in touch with the people running it. And Vince Gilligan, who makes Breaking Bad, asked him, what do you want to see on this show? And he said, I want to know more about Gretchen and Elliot. 
And if people don't remember, those are two people from Walt's past, the main character, who then in the last season come like roaring back in a really interesting way. And it's because a huge fan of the show said they should do that. It was that easy. It's also, that's the creator understanding how valuable, beyond fan, that's just understanding that you're making something and why you make something is so that it tells a story and ha that story has an impression on people. Yeah. And to feel that come back where people, you see how deeply they invested they are in your creation, that's an incredible reward. It is funny to think about like what it takes as a fan to like infiltrate a series. But at some point, it's also <laughs> just this mutual exchange where, especially with a long-running show like Breaking Bad that didn't know what its end point would be so it had to write with such precision for a moving target which is right. wild like yeah. you know they had time once they established how long the run of the series would be to figure out what its plan was but when you start season two with no real like firm idea of where you're going to be able to bring that stuff back like it makes sense that the fluidity of the people enjoying the experience as it's being created and the people creating it would find each other and it's neat that that had long enough to be collaborative, but also had an end point so that they could, so the creators could write cohesively to that point. Yeah, for sure. It's yeah. a detriment of American television that you never know when your series gets to end. And if you're trying to tell a story, which Breaking Bad managed to do, and lots of other, you know, premium dramas do well, to me, it's always a service to the creators to know when the hell it's going to end. There was a woman who was an incredible comedy fan in the Bay Area, Laura Kimball, who, why does it have to happen to the best ones? I don't know. A tumor moved into her stupid, her brilliant brain. Dumb tumor, smart brain. Yeah. She was our best comedy fan, came to every show, also passionately loved TV, uh, loved Mad Men, started coming to all the shows she could as she was like slowly checking out because tumors are mean. She had gotten in touch with the folks at Mad Men because she was bummed that she wasn't going to make it through the last season. And super confidential on the down low, they sent her the scripts before they were shot oh, because cool. she wasn't going to make it. And That's she did. Amazing. By the time the series was wrapping up, she was, uh, I'm using air quotes here, around when the series ended. But no, she wasn't. If she had to wait to get satisfaction on that as a fan, she wouldn't have been able to appreciate it like she was just reading it when she was in better health. And that to me is like why we do it. That yeah, somebody yeah. literally who doesn't have much time to give wants to spend it with you and what you created. And I mean, spoilers aside, like the risk you take in sending that script to that person is just so cool. Like that's, of course it's worth it. Yeah, I think there's some people too that just like understand that like, this is being given to me for a specific reason and I love this thing so much that I don't want to ruin it. Like, I actually do love this yes. thing. And so for her, like, for her spoiling it would have been, like, actually spoiling a thing that she loves. And why would you take that away? That's why, I like, the yeah. thing with the Breaking Bad where the guy was offered to be given the, how the show ended and he said, like, he doesn't want to be told because he wants to right. see it happen. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Just to go to Doctor Who real quick, is like Christopher Eccleston, who played the Ninth Doctor, left the show after one season and he doesn't care for the show and he doesn't, he like, he had a bad experience with the show and got into oh. like a lot of arguments with the producers and that was part of why he left but similarly like there's fans who are sick or fans that are dealing with a major life thing and for those fans he will still be the doctor for them because he knows how much they love the show and how much they loved his work on the show yeah. so occasionally like you'll see like rumblings of a video that he like sent to a, a sick fan that's like him doing his doctor voice and saying like hey your doctor's here for you and stuff like that and so yeah, I think so there's cool. something great about when a show or an actor or a writer involved in the show knows this is a person this is not a 
website. This is not a like like a gossip column. This is not a thing. This is just a person who has an unfathomable love for the thing that I did. And the least I can do is just like give them a little piece of that. That part of fandom I think is amazing. Because there's a great example here with Doctor Who and also with Game of Thrones. Maybe maybe we get into Doctor Who here. Because uh, there's take it away, Spurt. I don't have the <laughs> that was short for expert. I'm I, to make I liked that, it. That I liked on. it a lot. I think Who fans are so vocal because we're kind of often like the at least historically with sci-fi fandoms like Star Trek or Star Wars, Doctor Who was always kind of like the nerdy group amongst that group. Whovian fans are like like we're still we're cool too. Our show's great. It's got it Douglas Adams wrote for it and. Uh, you know, <laughs> so. Andrew Garfield was a guest star in the third season. It seems sillier, right? Does it's, it have a better sense of humor about itself? I, Star Trek, it, it I'm got a, one. A it didn't generation. originally used to have one, but it got one. That yeah. is good. And, and then probably it lost fun it, to watch. and then it got it back again. That's yeah. good. How yeah, long has it been on? It was on from 65 to 89. It was off for a while. There was a TV movie 96. It was off again for a while, and then it came back in 05, and it's been back ever since, except for like year and a half intervals here, here and there where they're changing the stuff over, and we're like all desperately waiting till October 7th when a new yeah. season with a new doctor, with a new <laughs> showrunner. And then this season's been amazing because they haven't released almost anything and so for the first time with this show in a long time it's like I don't already have like major cast things being spoiled for me and stuff like that so I'm very oh, excited that's Sorry. great I feel like that gets at what a tradition and long-running thing it is and yeah. even and also like you said with Eccleston when he started as a doctor I think it was after one of those long yeah layoffs he was the new, he, he was going. the he was the returning doctor after the long break so. And, so, and so like new stuff with it can be tricky yeah and but I and, think that like the longevity of the show is credited to the fact that it changes so frequently. Like, like there's yeah. eras in the classic like run of it. Like when when Patrick Troughton left at the end of he's the second Doctor and John Pertwee took over. It's almost like a whole different show then as well because the Doctor. It's first of all it's in color, which is a big thing because it was like the switch over from the '60s to the '70s. But even like the oh, tone wow. of the show goes from being like this weird goofy '60s like adventuring sci-fi thing to being almost like a '70s like spy thriller because the Doctor's not traveling through space and time. He's just working for this agency on Earth that like watches out for aliens and like works right. in a lab and has like a weird car and stuff so like he would like <laughs> and then like when he left and tom baker came in baker was there for like seven years but at the beginning of his run it almost had like a more like a like a late 70s horror movie vibe to it like it was like dark it was shot darker and it was on film and it looked a little bit more like uh, there was like mysterious like there was like mummy storylines and stuff like that and like eldritch gods and then towards the end of his run there was like an era like when I mentioned Douglas Adams took over and it became goofy and fun and kind of more oh, was he like running it because I'm he I'm was much the script more... editor the <laughs> first episode of the show like they literally you can tell they only had one studio to shoot in so like they would just like film all the things in one shot classic sci-fi having no money yeah <laughs> and sci-fi um... on a British public television yeah those shows have <laughs> such a charm it feels like every set has like two guys just quietly holding it in the yeah. back like whispering under the weight like oh I only got 30 more seconds. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. There's like Soon no reach. As the cameras start yeah. rolling, everything just like falls to shambles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In one of the modern incarnations, they had started with the twelfth Doctor, which is Peter Capaldi. Yes. And they were looking at, like you say, Riley, like, oh, we need new stuff for it. Yeah. And there was a graph, a motion graphics artist named Billy Hanshaw who just put his idea for an intro on YouTube, which a lot of people do. It's a pretty common thing. I've seen a bunch even for the new Doctor. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, because it included Capaldi's face, and it was a whole specific thing. And the overall scheme of it, uh, it was seen by showrunner Stephen Moffat, 
who then got in touch with the artist and was like, we want to use this. Yeah. And in the interview, I think he said it was the first new idea for the intro he'd seen since the 60s. Yeah, because a lot of what the the common thing people went with was this idea of this like time vortex. And so you would just like see a version of the TARDIS going through a vortex. Yeah. But this guy, Billy Hanshaw, yeah. he made it like clock gears that were coming out of like a, like a, like a spiral. And it was a really cool looking shot. Yeah, gears like a clock because of time. Yeah. That's a thing in the show. Yeah, instead of being, <laughs> instead of just being the vortex, it was actually like this more conceptual, like an abstract version of it. Thanks to basically YouTube, somebody could be like, no, my favorite show should be like this. And they were like, ah, hey, you're right. Yeah. Great. Miracle. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> I do think that's part of like the creative process that you don't anticipate because once you love something, it feels like every part of it was planned perfectly. It all comes together because you found something yeah. random. The movie Spy has an end credit song that's pretty fun. And it's in the movie because Paul Feig heard the music supervisor listening to music and was like, I like that. That's the end credit song. And didn't oh, know no the way. band, asked who the band was. And it is. It's a great song. It's perfect for the end credits. Time goes on. He's a busy dude. Just directing is all decision making. He's making decisions all, all day. Uh, <laughs> makes a, a hundred more that day. And then weeks later, it's like, oh, premiere party. We need a band to play. Get that band from the end credits, I guess. That sounds easy. And to his surprise, they're kids. The band is like full oh, of cool. their... I'm trying to remember their name and I can't, but you have computers. That's got such an easy story, right? Like, wouldn't it be better if it's like, well, the director found these kids and didn't they sound, you didn't know they were kids. Well, how cool. He gave them their shot. It's not that. He heard a song, needed to make a decision fast, made it, needed to make another decision fast, made it. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, whoops, I gave 15-year-olds their, like, what a break to get. <laughs> and they're talented. It was their talent. Sometimes it's going to be the story. Sometimes yeah. it's going to be the fact that they were just perfect. But I love that that wasn't a plan and it's, it's accidentally such a cool thing like <laughs> making something for your favorite show and putting it on YouTube those right. kids aren't in a band to be at the end of a movie it's right. just what happened because they put something they created out there and somebody was like yeah that that's yeah, what I sure. needed I, I like I'm busy we got more stuff to decide that's it we're done that's yeah. just cool there's a fun kind of almost more direct one with the lineage of Doctor Who because yeah. apparently in 1995 uh, someone on a message board was like hey I think it would be very fun if the term doctor is in the English language because the doctor has been helping people throughout time. And so that then his title became the meaning of the term. And then the person posting that was Stephen Moffat, yeah. who runs the show. Well, that's what I was going to say, <laughs> is that what's fascinating about the modern incarnation of Doctor Who is that pretty much all the people who have showrun for it and most of the writers that came on when it first started and have worked on it like consistently since it came back – were people who were fans of the classic show. And yeah. in, in the time, what we call like the wilderness years in between the old show and the new show, were the people who were writing like target novels and writing like audio things for it. And like, so they were essentially the quote unquote fanfic writers that were like keeping the like mythology of this series alive. And so they're the ones who pitched the new show when it came back and got to yeah. write for it. So essentially the modern Doctor Who is a bunch of like nerds whose fanfic is canon. <laughs> that was fascinating. Like the thing we, we were talking about a little bit, that once something gets longevity and you're still creating it, all of a sudden that creativity becomes collaborative because you're sharing the experience of people like experiencing it while you're making it. That's yeah. such a weird combination. Yeah. Most artists, the first, you know, you work so hard to get the pilot out, and then all of a sudden, if schedules are weird, you're writing a show like, ah, there needs to be more of these in like 10 days. Yeah. Oh, we boy. need a season and another season <laughs> right now. Things happen, you know, slow and then super fast. It makes sense that there's somebody around with more time to think about these questions that just answer them. And I'm, it, <laughs> yeah. it's rad that who and other like creators are like, yeah, cool, cool, cool. We 
like, yes, that, what you said. Yes. Yeah. Yes, fan. What you wrote is the thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and that, I think that leads uh, into Game of Thrones because there's a cracked piece, How the GOT Fandom Impacted the Story in Major Ways by Robert Evans and Sam Jackson. And it's about two people in Switzerland. Their names are Elio and Linda Antonsson. And they just loved Game of Thrones, the books. Yeah, A Song uh, of Ice and Fire, if you're being super nerdy about it. but Well, being correct about it, that's yeah. true. That's some spurt <laughs> stuff right there. you got to be a spurt to know that. Uh, speaking of these big spurts, they uh, started Westeros.org in 1999, which is pretty early internet, too. And they uh, just that's cataloged. so early for all that. That's like ahead of the saddest curve. Game yeah. of Thrones has a particular fandom. And there are aspects <laughs> of it that are sad. And if we're trying to pretend that's untrue, we're lying to ourselves. <laughs> I, yeah, I think the worst thing well, a fandom can do is, is take itself too seriously to where you can't be willing to like have jokes made about you. Oh, and this and, is a serious yeah. fandom. And this is, it, the she like is dark. I feel like Game of Thrones is also somewhat rare in these fandoms where there there are a lot of very long, deep fantasy novel series. There's like Wheel of Time and all these other ones, but Game of Thrones is one that kind of hit oil with the broader culture where mm-hmm. it's uh, very, very well known because of the TV show. So having an HBO series yeah. tends to help you with your broad culture. Yeah. Well, also <laughs> being on the like the curve edge of the sibling doing it that Americans are apparently obsessed with <laughs> right now. I don't even think it started with Game of Thrones, but there is the weird trend that, I mean, it's easy to poke fun at right now that if you've ever looked at adult content on the internet in the past couple months, this year basically, it's been very yeah. family obsessed. And I feel like Game of Thrones just caught it's a sexy show that with naughty sex. Like, that's why Game of Thrones, nobody likes the fantasy part. And I feel like as we get deeper into the story well, of these fans, they're like, yeah, nobody likes the fantasy part. Like, everybody's <laughs> liking the wrong thing about it. We're supposed to, it's, I want to know about the pork pie and the defacing. We don't care as much about the doing it. And HBO is like, <laughs> Let the siblings fuck. They just don't care. I like that they went from in the first season of the show, because now that we're out of the book. So spoilers, people haven't watched them on the show, but they went from, isn't it weird that this guy's been banging his sister to you guys should root for the this aunt to bang her nephew. <laughs> like that that's, was, that's like, but, we're like the internet, like we went over the course of these seasons from being upset about incest to actively rooting for <laughs> incest and making memes about it yes. and like cheering it on and like being excited when it, and being mad that when it happened it wasn't shot in a way that was sexy enough for what was happening in the scene. <laughs> that was, if people don't know, that was the peak of the most recent season was the two siblings finally hooked up. The aunt and her nephew. <laughs> oh yeah, it's so yeah. confusing. You're, yeah. you're right. When the, and the online community is very on top of all those details. Like the fan theories had been saying it for years and it was like oh, the yeah, fan true. theory that existed before the shows did. Also like the whole thing was that George R. R. Martin had asked the guys who created the show if they knew the answer to this and that's how like they got the job writing the show when like it's one of the oh. most obvious questions like of course that's what happened right. um the question was who is john who is john snow's parents that was the like thing that got them yeah. the job like right. they, okay you were you knew my work well enough to understand that but it was like one of the things that westwood.org had probably blown the scoop on years before the show existed yeah but, so when it finally paid off and people have been waiting so long to hear someone on the show say, or in the books, like it had not been acknowledged that Jon Snow is the lost Targaryen child. It'd be like if everyone knew Luke Skywalker was Darth Vader's son, but it didn't come out until this year. Like <laughs> right. if it Last Jedi like, had finally, finally revealed it. Yeah. Well, and because uh, George R.R. R. Martin seems also willing to just, whether it's the showrunners, like, can you predict what will probably happen? He's also been willing to let these super fans just kind of 
handle stuff for him. Yeah. The, the online community was so dense that when the people running the TV show, Benioff and Weiss, were starting to work on it, they checked in with fans there. The fans pitched some casting that happened. They suggested Jason Momoa could be Cal Drogo, and then Charles Dance could be Tywin Lannister, and, and like helped uh, do some, I think, good casting. Like They did a good it's job. Great. And then also, the Elio and Linda Antonson, they got in touch with George R. R. Martin and would help him out at specific times with, hey, you wrote this side short story where, you know, like a character's 30 years too young. It, it's very detailed that in the article, I can't follow it, uh, but they can. And it basically escalated to the point where they got flown from Switzerland to Santa Fe, New Mexico to meet George R. R. Martin, who then hired them to write like the encyclopedia of Game of Thrones stuff and continue to help him like build the world. Yeah, I like reading the guy. detail that they also like, just so things don't accidentally become non-canon or whatever, they like wrote the book with the idea that it's a flawed narrator writing the encyclopedia so that something is wrong, yeah. like it's written into the fiction why it's wrong. Because <laughs> I don't totally follow it, but it's some kind of encyclopedia that's an in-universe yeah. thing where like a character in it is writing the encyclopedia. Yeah, it's like the Bible then... where like whoever wrote it down wrote a lot of bullshit and we're all supposed to believe it years later. The Bible's <laughs> fandom gets real toxic with it. <laughs> Let's look at another world that kind of, because there's so many ways that fans have like built these entire things. Uh, uh, I don't know how much you guys are into Diablo at all. I was a huge PC gamer, so I did a lot of it. But there was a rumor about the first Diablo that it contained a cow level. There were just posts after posts, and I think part of the buildup of it was people claimed, like, if you've modded or cheated in any way in the first Diablo, it'll lock you out of the cow level. So if you haven't found it, like, you probably just got too into it. And then uh, Blizzard, who makes Diablo, found all these posts, and then for April Fool's 1999, put out a hint that there would be a cow level in Diablo 2. And to be clear for folks, the cow level is where it's a bonus level where you fight a bunch of cows with big axes. Like, it's, it's it's a battle thing. Uh, and people were like, oh, haha, what a funny joke they did. But then Diablo 2, they just put in a cow level. They just went for it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, if you hear a good idea, run with it. And battle axes, cows? Okay, yes. Yes, please. I think the yeah. funnier joke would have been to say there was a cow level and then not actually put it into the game. <laughs> <laughs> I will oh, say yeah. I am it's more like, tempted to play Diablo. Just normal fighting with battle axes. Not as it just doesn't draw me in like it does some. But tell me that there's a cow level for some reason. Oh, yeah. okay. All right. <laughs> oh, look at those cows. cows. have had it too good for too long. I'm taking them down. Taking them down. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, they, and then they also put in a secret pony level in Diablo 3. And I assume every other Diablo they make, they will do uh, something like that. They'll keep going. There's also the game Mortal Kombat. Apparently the internet decided that uh, the famous fatality thing in Mortal Kombat, a lot of people on the internet just started lying about there being extra fatalities you can find and like cool ways to I do it. I remember that as a kid, I remember people telling me like there was tricks to get fatalities that didn't actually work. And I remember like losing a lot of time trying to play those games <laughs> and like on the Genesis or whatever. After uh, the developers saw many of these lies, they just started then putting them in future games because they were like, oh, they are fun ideas. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like there was one where a tree just in the background eats one of the characters. And then they said, I mean, a tree eating people, that's gold. That is like, pretty we're good. In. Yeah. We're into that. And they also rolled out an entire character named Scarlet, uh, Scarlet spelled with a K, uh, just because people kept lying about it and it seemed like a good idea. They were like, oh, <laughs> that would be a fun uh, ninja sort of character to put in. Great. That's how Miles Morales, the Spider-Man character, he, the, all, the oh. other Spider-Man came to be, yeah. was basically when there was casting rumors for what eventually was Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man debacle. There was like, 
a push on the internet to get Donald Glover to play Spider-Man. Yeah. And Donald Glover was like, I'll play Spider-Man. Let's do it. And then (laughs) there was like this weird racist backlash. Like, Spider-Man can't be a black guy. Like that for no reason. It actually would make a lot of sense. And and then there was an argument. Someone's like, well, if you look at the current climate, if you want to like have like a downcast kid in Queens who would get superpowers and fight for the, like it would probably be a a person of color. Right. And so then Marvel was like, that's actually a really good point. And so even though Garfield got cast as Peter Parker, they like because of that backlash, they wrote this character of Miles Morales, who is a black slash Latino character who lives in I think in Queens or maybe the Bronx, but I, um, he was in the Ultimate Spider-Man universe and became yeah. so popular they eventually like merged the two universes and they like kept him. So like he and Peter Parker are both Spider-Man in New York. And then to bring it all full circle on the cartoon series, they hired Donald Glover to do the voice of Miles Morales. And then also oh, I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah, and then his character he has a he has a cameo in the last Spider-Man movie. And his character is like supposed to be like Miles's uncle because he's too old now to play the character. But if they ever cat, if they ever want to add Miles to those movies, they've like established that family exists. They in just the have to kill Donald Glover so in that cool. universe, yeah. right? An uncle has to die to make a Spider-Man. Oh, yeah, Isn't yeah. that an essential I think it's part a dad. I think yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Comics. I'm glad you bring him up too because that's such a. I feel like that's such a good. Uh, space for all this positive fandom to happen because comics has it can carry so many different universes. You can do everything. Yeah. Right? At the same time, there's just oh, it's Earth six two seven five one, and then that's the one with the other yeah. thing that you want to do. Well, that's why I love Spider Gwen so much. Spider Gwen was on Earth sixty five, and they they basically took this character who had been famously fridged, like like maybe the most classic example of a female character being fridged for giving a male character pathos, and like written yeah. away, and then they like did this big event where they had all the Spider-Mans from all the different universes. And they're like, what if there's a universe where Gwen Stacy didn't die and instead she got bit by the spider and became the hero herself and her Peter Parker's dead. And so like that was going to be like a one-off, but her costume was so great and people liked the idea of bringing Gwen Stacy back in that way so much that she ended up getting her own series and is now like one of the most popular Marvel characters. And she's part of this new Marvel Rising cartoon series and she's getting a new book called Ghost Spider. So like, that's like an example of like, hey, what if we just like undid some of our past wrongs and the audience responds to it? That seems to be a thing lately and I'm into it where like sequels might be interesting or necessary or just profitable or you're Spider-Man and you've been around a gazillion years, whatever it is. Like the right to just decide to isolate part of your canon and eliminate it is fun. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about fan ideas working their way into the the stuff they love. There's also a lot of things where fans just directly put themselves into the show. Yeah, I love these uh, like little schemey things that happen in this document you sent us. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is an article called Six Fans Who Became Part of the Show Through Hilarious Fraud. It's by Justin Crockett. And there was an Australian tourist in New York who just became a Gossip Girl extra by kind of conning their way into a hotel they were shooting at and going into the restaurant, down a hallway, down an escalator, like through a bunch of ways. And then the crew mistook them for an extra, so they like shoved them into makeup, gave them champagne, and then they spent six hours just being in the background of their favorite show. It's great. You should know how easy that is. Yeah. And uh, like, it's fun once, and it's the good joke was made. All you did was work for free. Yeah. Like, it's exciting the first time you do it when you stand with a glass of stale champagne for six hours next to a tired actress, but it's not, there's a reason you pay extras. If you could just count 
on devoted fans to just wander into the hotel. It wouldn't be a profession. Yeah, but I literally God, sat. God, <laughs> I've seen how terrible those days can I be. I literally sat a table away from Laura Dern for like four hours on the set of Enlightened, and I'm even that was like, all right, when is this going to be over? When can I go home? And I was still like, right. The best part about it was we were That's supposed amazing. to be eating at a TGI Fridays or an Applebee's, one of the two, and the the guy across me at the table had a plate full of fries, and this idiot like started eating the fries, and I'm like, you know, you have to eat fries now, like every, every shot time. for the next four hours. Oh, and as a result, that he did like. And they had to keep, like, refilling his fry plate because, like, continuity. and The story is, like, girl lives her dream in fun way. And immediately we're both like, that's a terrible day. She just doesn't know it. She didn't <laughs> even get minimum wage for that job. Somebody got arrested for a labor law violation. I should go because for of it. it. Yeah. Honestly, like, you'll be surrounded by people who are tired and miserable at work. But, again, I, I can't, it's very easy to just wander up. Well, it's, it sounds like, have both of you done extra work? I have. Oh, yeah. Yes. And if you did it on a show you loved, would it like spoil it? You know, not not spoil the plot, but just sort of make it less magical, make it less of a thing. I don't think it would. I think uh, it would be kind of interesting. I, I never did it on a show that I really liked, but I did it on shows that like my family liked, and that was like yeah. fun to like send my my brother and my dad like texts from me on the set of NCIS and stuff like that. Oh yeah, there's, there's another... some people who actually like get like long term extra work on shows like there's some shows yeah. like like if a show is at a regular location all the time they might like and there's like a staff that works they'll like get people who just like are always the people who work in this place or always like are the office workers oh. or something like that what could be even more fun is that there was a heyday for paid audiences after Fran Drescher had a terrible stalker, they uh, and that show was shot, and the nanny was shot in front of a studio audience. There was no way you could change that chemistry. They had to hire an audience, not an extra, not extras, oh. an audience. Yeah. So they so were they could vet the, people. the same people that came back to see that show recorded, and they became essentially professional laughers. And because they were such a dependably good audience, a few other shows shot in front of live sh- audiences would also have them come out. And it is less like they were paid wow. to laugh. It's interesting to hear them interviews, and there's a couple places you can. Um, uh, they just got – they knew each other really well like extras did, uh, but their whole job was just to be good at laughing. And because they got to know, like, the show and the set so well, they – it wasn't like I get a check for laughing hard. It's like I wanted – they wanted the show to succeed. Yeah. And they wanted everybody in the room. So it started to feel really warm. Like, this thing they did – it was fun to do a live studio audience, but then it became dangerous. So they found a benefit in this problem they had – where they had to get a paid audience in there and it turned into a warm part of the family and like a way that the show became more successful. It's an interesting That's fascinating. It's an interesting yeah. story and a real gross problem, but an interesting well, yeah. And I, I can see the appeal of that <laughs> as an audience member the same way that like there's a lot of people who like to do like live tweeting of shows to the point where now outlets will hire someone to live tweet a show. So it's kind of like that's like the modern techie version of being a paid yeah. audience member and people who do it have to usually really like the thing or really hate the thing, one of the two, or write up recaps, the same kind of thing, where it's like you're basically like you've become part of the like the overall like sphere of that show because like if you're a paid audience member, you're basically there to help the show do better and and your benefit is, oh, I get to watch the show before anybody else does. I get to see it before it happens. I get to see the – and same thing is if if you're doing live tweeting, most likely if you're doing it for an outlet, you've actually gotten like a press copy of the show to watch earlier in the day so you get to watch it before anybody else does and that's like your secret inclusion. Oh, yeah. Right. You're like almost part of the crew or something at that point and then rooting for it. But you can't because of your responsibilities. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the whole thing. <laughs> Great power comes responsibility. My dad uncle told me that. <laughs> Donald Glover, he was a nice guy. <laughs> Support for today's show comes from Squarespace because 
hey, listen, you're great. If you follow Cracked, you're interested in a wide array of things. A lot of them are very neat and thinky. Uh, you probably know more about the world than uh, maybe the average person. Let's just go ahead and call you somebody who's like that. So why don't you show yourself off, huh? You, you deserve it, you know? Uh, people are saying you're great. Why don't you let more people know with a website from Squarespace? They have beautiful templates created by a world-class designer. You customize that to yourself. Whatever you do with it, it'll work well on mobile because Squarespace is smart enough to build websites that work on tablets and phones and the other devices that people do so many online things on, such as uh, listening to podcasts. See? You know. It's a thing people do. Also, Squarespace makes buying domains simple, which I think is an underrated feature, you know, because as you're putting together a website that you want to love, you want to have the perfect domain for it, the perfect web address that you'll be happy to tell people about. Squarespace makes getting that domain easy, and I think that's really valuable. So head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code CRACKED to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com CRACKED. Offer code crack. There's also there's a, another one here from the article about a premiere party uh, for The Rock. If, if people Which... remember The Rock, it's a movie about Alcatraz. And as they were doing a premiere party for it on Alcatraz, uh, there was a man named Jeff Bunch who decided that, sure, Alcatraz is a federal park patrolled by park rangers that you can't trespass on, but I would like to go to the premiere at the Unbreakable Prison. I would really like to do that as <laughs> yeah. a person. Uh, and so he windsurfed in informal wear. <laughs> Uh, I love it. And he windsurfed into the premiere and apparently climbed a hill, got into the party, and met Sean Connery and started having a drink with him before park rangers dragged him away. It's a little James That's Bond. the part uh, yeah. that kills me. Like, you got in, the guy's having a drink. Why you got to drag him out now? Yeah. Like, is he bothering right. Connery or can't he just have the win? Like, yeah. just let the dude. What are you going to do? Tow his windsurfer thing? Let him sail back to shore. He'll be fine. Yeah. At some point, if you make it all the way into the party you're not invited to, you should just get to stay. I agree. Well, that yeah, because there's there's another one here, too, where I had never heard of them, but they're an EDM music duo called Peking Duck, and they were having a concert, and there was a super fan of it named David Spargo, and he was like, I want to meet this band. And so what he did is he basically got in line for the VIP area, and while he was waiting in line, edited the band's Wikipedia to which say that he... Genius. Right, which is great. Uh, and to say that he was one of their uh, stepbrother. He was related to them. <laughs> and so then when the guards were like, no, you're not on the list, he was like, but look at Wikipedia. And then he got in and told the band he did it, and they were like, that's awesome, just hang out. Surfing in to see the rock at Alcatraz, that's awesome. Stalking a band and changing their Wikipedia yeah. profile to say you're in their family? Yeah. Not cool. You can actually that, ask security to make that guy leave. That's yeah. fair. I would at least... I would at least have the guy frisked. If nothing else, I would have him patted down. He does not get to have yeah. a drink with Sean Connery. Sorry. Yeah. No. Well, also, yeah, in hindsight, why would a band's Wikipedia page list their step-siblings? And why is a that's security guard like, that's not a thing. yeah, you're showing me something I'm squinting at on your cell phone? That's all I need to see. <laughs> yeah. Like, I feel like every technology has like one round where people can use it to get into things. And then once that goes on, like every social media has one person who used it to become huge, you know, and like like Dane Cook with like MySpace and like that and like Napster right. or whatever. And then, yeah. <laughs> Rob Delaney on Twitter. Yes, got to exactly. Be the one. Exactly. Then, well, any anyway, Peking Duck, very, very famous, a marginally more famous musician uh, is named John Lennon. 
Oh, that guy. He right, was, right, right. He uh, was in the Beatles, and he did some other things. And so there was a fan of his named Jerry Levitan, who it was a teenager in 1969 in Toronto, and just decided, I would like to meet John Lennon. That would be great. And John Lennon was holed up in his hotel room with Yoko Ono, not talking to anyone. He was not interested. But so then Jerry Levitan just went up to the room, sneaking by security, and then knocked on the door and said he was with the press. And that was it. And he got in. It's amazing. This is the dark side of this. Like Caitlin was saying about like people being creepy and coming into things. We feel. How did John Lennon die? A person was, was way say, too yeah. easily oh, able to kid, approach like, him. Mark David Chapman had I, the same thought. Like, I forgot. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> like, um. like, like, that's where it's like, oh, that, that thing that's so neat and a fun anecdote can easily turn dark with the exact ingredients just... Yeah. All he needs a copy of, of Catcher in the Rye and apparently... And an early childhood head trauma. Yeah. That's apparently add those two spices to the recipe and you have a dangerous combo. Yeah. Oh, man. Because Jerry Levitan, he... Uh, apparently his story for getting in was, I'm with Canadian News and that worked, which is amazing. That's a terrible alibi. There's no news in Canada. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, this fandom can be so dark and so positive depending on just how people, what people are going through or yeah. how they feel or it's, it's a, and that's even pre-internet too, both of those things. Yeah. yeah. I will say that we've spent, you know, most of this conversation on the positive aspects of fandom. It'd be easy to have an equally lengthy conversation about how it could be negative, but maybe it's important not to do that. There's so many yeah. good ways and healthy ways and positive ways to be a fan of something. Yeah. And like, if your fandom feels toxic it's not the thing's fault that's coming from inside the house you got to fix that if yeah. you're screaming at an actress because she was in star wars that the screaming is the problem not the actress or the star wars right. that's the what's well, the dark side of like all the stuff we're talking about like all oh, these people influence the outcome of this show it's like there's also that side of fandom that's like oh the thing didn't go exactly how i wanted it to go so therefore it's bullshit and horrible yeah, I mean, I'm glad we're focusing yeah. on the positive elements of that, but there is also that weird thing, and this is the thing that happens with Doctor Who fandom occasionally, too, is, like, there's this thing that happens where fans have decided that we know the thing better than the people making it, mm -hmm. or, like, that if they yeah. did something different than we would have done with it, they don't get the thing, or they don't respect the thing, or they don't understand the thing, and most of the time it's like, no, they just have a different story in their head than you do, and it, Right. That's just what happens. Like they were they were given the keys to tell the story and this is the story they came up with. And like you can have conflict. You can be like, hey, I critically I don't think this worked the way they wanted it to, or there's a storytelling issue. But I think when you get to this point of like, I am the only one who understands this thing, and anybody else who looks use it through a different lens is wrong. Right. That's where fandom can be like a problem. And that's like the difference between like good fandom. Like I think that like there's yeah. two types of fans in my opinion that, or and like, and then there's obviously like subcultures of all of these, but if you're a fan and you love a thing, you either go, Oh, I love this thing so much. I want other people to love it. And I want everybody to share this love with me and anybody who's into it. I want to hear why you like this thing. And that's where I think like using Dr. Who as an example, there's so many ears of the show and there's so many yeah. ways the show has tonally been different that I can have a conversation with somebody who loves Dr. Who and they might love it for an entirely different reason than I do. And they might like a different era than I do. And like, they might have a totally different reason why they're connected to it. Like this was just when it, I started watching it when I was a kid. So this is my doctor, or this is like, I was going through this thing with my wife and this is why I started watching at this point and this is why I love it and like for me cool. like I very much clue into the most recent era with Stephen uh, Peter Capaldi and Stephen Moffat because it was the era that was running when I was starting to transition and the show is so much about rebirth and about regenerating and becoming like a new version of yourself that like that 
connected with me. And the fact that at the end of all that, the doctor became a woman is like, oh my God, the doctor regenerated along and transitioned with me. So yeah, like, that's yeah. what I get from it. So that's one way you can experience fandom. And you just want to like, and when, when you find out people are new to it, you get excited. Like, oh my God, you get to experience this thing that I love here. Love it with me. And it may be a little creepy at times, but it's also fun to like see their joy of a thing that you used to feel that same joy for at that level. And like you can experience it. The other kind of fandom is like, I love this thing. I love it so much that it's mine and nobody else can love it as much as I do. And I'm going to push people out of it because I don't want them to take what I love away from me. And I'm get to, I get to have it all for myself. Yeah. And that's where I think it's like toxic and like angry. And yeah, like you go on Twitter and tweet at an actress because she was in it and she doesn't look like you think she should look like people that are in it. And you have some sort of hatred for her, even though she did nothing to you. And all she did was get her dream fucking job. Those are both great examples that we, we've kind of hinted at the Star Wars one where actress Kelly Marie Tran was an Asian woman in a Star Wars movie and then basically got Pounded off Instagram for it. Yeah. Uh, and then there have been all kinds of exciting things going on with Doctor Who, too. When I, I feel bad for those angry fans about who are just mad about that change, they shouldn't be doing what they're doing, but also, like, I almost feel bad for them because, like, these are massive properties w with all kinds of amazing talent behind them, and their anger is not going to change it. It's so destructive that they feel that way in so many ways because yeah. they're not going to get what they're asking for, and they are asking for it for such weird, sad reasons. Well, it has nothing to do <laughs> with any show or any movie. Like, yeah. whatever you're freaking out at someone online about, it's the freak out. That's the part mm -hmm. that that's on you. It does not. It's outside of the thing you're a fan of at that point. You've left yeah. all of that behind, and you're now just expressing your own pathology in a gross, weird way. It's yeah. fascinating to watch people unravel about stuff and make it about the fiction. Like, no, honey, that's you. That's just yeah. you. And I think that like, we almost see a microcosm of, like, what's going wrong with our society right now in the way that plays out. Like, to take... Star Wars, for example, because that's the most recent major example of it. Yeah. Like that movie came out last December and a portion really loved it, a portion really hated it, and a portion felt indifferent about it. Right. But then people go on the internet and they start talking about it and then they find these forums where someone is like, this is this is a travesty that's been used against us. And then like someone who might have been like, I didn't really like it, might start reading that. And next thing you know, they start getting radicalized in their anger for it because they're in these like small pocket communities that are just feeding off each other's like furiosity and their anger for it. And so someone who like left it going, yeah, this thing's about it. I didn't like it, it might not have worked, suddenly like are, are like repeating the talking points that these like forums and these videos have created yeah. that now it went from I didn't like this thing to the makers of this thing are out to get us and they hate us and they're <laughs> trying to destroy us and I think the same thing is what happened over the course of the last decade with the internet especially with these like sub forums on like Reddit or 4chan and stuff like that where it went from being like oh I'm not getting dates with women that I that I would like to get to women as a whole are conspiring Inspiring against men like me and, and there's like this whole conspiracy and that's how you get like this like weird angry incel movements and I think yeah, that like yeah. it's to me it's fascinating because it's just the exact same level of rage and the exact same symptoms it's just like this tempest in a teapot is, is a small version you can see how these groups formed and I don't know how to fix it is the problem that's all dead on and, and also I 
if there is a fix, we can solve everything, right? We'll yeah, definitely. In the Star Wars case where uh, a lot of people saw Kelly Marie Tran harassed offline yeah. and they were like, I'm very upset about it. And then it started a fan art campaign. It was hashtag fan art for Rose and people were just posting wonderful illustrations and drawings and things. Yeah. And it was one of these sort of divides where one side was just clearly much more fun to be a part of. Yeah. Uh, and especially when we're talking about entertainment, you probably want to be in the fun camp. And maybe that is a way forward through these things. Is yeah, to we just circle have a lot back around to like, <laughs> though it's usually not the person with the ticking time bomb tumor in their head that's like, man, I'm mad about this current. Like, you, right. once you, if something forces you to get your shit into perspective, then you're not going to spend a lot of time being mad about that kind of stuff online, you'd hope. Yeah, like I think with Doctor Who, there was definitely like, a pocket of the community that was a very negative backlash to them casting a woman to play the doctor. But I think most of the fans of the show that I've experienced are like, no, this is a show about change and about accepting different things. And so I think for the most part, there's been acceptance to it. But even I, like today, I left a Facebook group that I was in that was like a fandom group for the new doctor. Yeah. Because too many people in that group were posting screenshots of negative things others were saying and then spending like a whole thread being like, screw this guy, right? He's a jerk. And I'm like, I don't want to spend my time focusing on the negative things being said about the thing that I like. I just want to enjoy this thing. And that's like you said, I yeah. want to be in the group. That's the more fun group. Yeah. I want to be in the group that's like, I just love this thing and I want to hear about how much you love it. And I don't want negative space. I just want to have positive, fun things. And having said that, I'm more than willing to talk about aspects of things that I love that are problematic or things that sure. I love that like disturb me in ways and like bother me. But like you can do that without being like this thing is the devil and it's out to get me or ruin the thing that I love. Well, and I, I love what you say about Doctor Who being about a change and, and, and things evolving because also I feel like most art has some kind of positive message at the core of it. And it's always astounding to me when these fans are so mad and negative about a thing. Yeah. They're like, because I fully understand what this is about. Yeah. It's like, if you, if you understand Star Wars, you'd probably be nicer to downtrodden people, yeah. you know? Like, like if, you would have, be... if you ever enjoyed a Jim Henson product in your entire life, how are you mad that anyone thinks Burton and Ernie are gay in a sincere way? Like, how are you mad that, like, I always yeah. hated Burton and Ernie are gay jokes because they always felt really hacky and kind of homophobic to me. But yeah. now, like, that one writer for the show was like, I actually wrote them as a gay couple. And then, like, I've had, like, friends of mine who are queer who have said, like, I actually thought they were gay the whole time and it made me feel good that this thing that I was watching made me feel this way and these people have come out and said that have now been harassed on Twitter for saying that these two uh. characters being gay meant something to them and it's like it takes nothing away from your experience of the Muppets to accept that these two characters might be gay to an audience member like it doesn't mean that it has to be canon that they're gay it just means that these people got something out of it that you didn't get and that's okay that's what fandom is yeah well, yeah, isn't isn't there even a thing with Star Wars where uh, at least one of the actors playing Poe and playing um, the former stormtrooper, now a rebel, Finn. Finn? Yeah, at least one of them said they were playing it as if it yeah. was a, John, a uh, like Oscar relationship. Oscar Isaac said he was. Yeah, yeah. He said I played it as a romance, like. Which is very exciting to me because it like I can see it now, but also yeah. it either way it worked for them having a thing where they care about each other, like being palpable on screen. Yeah, it, it's like functional. It's great. There's a book called Ship It by my friend uh, Britta London, and it's all about that, about like the way that like the actors and the writers might not see the show the same way as the audience member, and like there's cool. this girl writing fanfic about a show that she likes, and she has shipped these two main characters, and then it's like about her perspective on it, and then the other point of view in the book is the perspective of the male like lead who's like this young like kind of uncomfortable with the idea of like being a gay shipped character but like 
it's really interesting how like it kind of comes together and that's so cool also between that and now i'm thinking of fan fiction too because we've got not just people who sort of write fan fiction it becomes part of the show but even it's not the most esteemed franchise but 50 shades of gray was i believe twilight fanfic originally yeah. and then it became a whole thing like are things more democratic than they've ever been like as far as this en- uh, this entertainment there's more ways into writing it than i think ever before well i think fan fiction is an interesting thing because the predominant authors of fan fiction are women and usually uh, like of marginalized voices especially yeah. and you know i don't want to make this like a whole gender war thing but i do think that that it's an example of how different types of fans react to what they do or don't like about a show that they're into. And so, like, I think yeah. that when this is a huge stereotype, but it's what seems to happen, and the Kelly Mode Tran thing is a great example of it, of where when the media you like doesn't do the things you want to do, one group of people goes online and yells at the creators and the actors who starred in it. The other group goes online and writes their own version of what would happen to it and shares it amongst their friends and headcanons things to be what they want it to be. Yeah. And Star Wars is a great example of it because what ended up happening was you had that group last spring who were like, we're going to raise $200 million and we're going to convince Disney <laughs> to make a new episode eight for us and we're going to fix this problem. Whereas like fanfic writers like, we already wrote our fanfic about it. Like, if you just want your own version of episode eight, just go on archive of your own and look it up. Like, it's there. Right. Like, someone has written it. You could you could write your own version <laughs> of the script as you want it and just post it. But, like, why is it so important to you that the version that you see in your head has to be the canon version of it? Because canon doesn't really matter as a fan of something. Canon only matters in that, like, this is the version being made for mass consumption. But yeah. if you are capable of creating a whole alternate version of the story in your head, just do it. Like for <laughs> fandom, just take the things you like and enjoy them. The things you don't like, just go, that didn't happen in my head. I feel like a lot of the, if people are outraged about a thing they love, it's because they feel they've been ignored or wronged or there's some kind of force against them. And and these are pretty much all capitalist enterprises who want people to watch the things. So I, I don't yeah. think they've been like wronged, wronged. There is a, there's a story in here from Eastern Bloc Romania in the past. I love this story. This is uh, so great. Where the, the TV show Columbo uh, was broadcast two times a week there and was a huge hit in Romania. And then in the U.S., they just kind of wrapped up making Columbo. They were like, we're done making it. But Romanian people thought that their Eastern Bloc government was like <laughs> cutting them off <laughs> and preventing them from getting it. And it was starting to cause some like unrest and issues. And so they had Peter Falk, the star of Columbo, record a PSA for the Romanian people in just like phonetic Romanian on yeah. cue cards because he doesn't speak it. Uh, but just to tell them, no, we're just done making it. Everything's fine. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Which sounds like to uh, me would be less convincing than if they just said like the show like it feels like like he's reading phonetic like I always picture him standing in front of someone holding up that day's newspaper and being like right, people of Romania I am safe do not revolt against your government I am fine Columbo's proof of life changes international affairs right. <laughs> there was a Futurama plot that was like that where there was like the show that was the Ally McBeal of that it's like it's like single female lawyer and then it's like it's being broadcast out into space and then the show was cancelled before it ended so the aliens who were watching it like come and invade Earth, and their only demand <laughs> is that we finish the story of single female lawyer. Oh, that's well, great. That's the ultimate, the ultimate fan movie, Galaxy Quest. Yeah, the, oh, uh, that's great. <laughs> the layers of fandom there. It's a pretty good examination of fan culture on all sorts of levels, yeah. and it holds up. It's fun to watch. It's a really good movie. <laughs> it's it actually even like better quality filmmaking than any of the oh. Star Trek stories. Who knew so, I could separate the art from the creator just for Tim Allen and Galaxy Quest? Who I knew? Yeah, I agree. It's so weird the passes I a lot in my head. But that one's fine, I guess. 
none of us are in communist Romania, I guess. Like, there's no there's no force mi- forcing the art that we watch to be something that's, like, withholding anything from us. It's just a world where if you participate in it, maybe the art that you love can be what you're hoping it is. One thing yeah. I always <laughs> like is that there seems to be a little bit less of a adherence to something having to have like a continuity. Like, in a, I, I think I actually like it better that way where like a lot of these new movies that are coming out that are like late term sequels of old movies are just going, Hey, that movie that was in the middle that none of nobody liked. We're just going to say that didn't happen. Yeah. We were talking oh. about that with Halloween and also it seemed like with predator that's out now, yeah. All yeah. The, you know, whether Terminator or not the reviews. Yeah. Terminator. I'm very excited to see both Terminator and uh, Halloween seem to have done that with great promise. And I feel like yeah. as fans, you become fan of the original and you'll indulge bad sequels but the idea of getting to f- refresh is uh, yeah. is cool and it seems like right now fans are into that I yeah. don't know if five years ago that would have been I don't think so like they made terrible Terminator movies for a reason it's because there wasn't an appetite to go back but there is right now I think Spider-Man yeah. helped with that a lot the fact that we've like rebooted Spider-Man three times in like a decade like yeah. people who are fans of those kind of things like if you're a fan of comics you know that comics continuities get chucked out all the time they're talking about making a new Batman series now with Ben Affleck leaving and somebody else playing Batman and I'm like just make a fun Batman movie and we get that his parents died like you don't have to give us an origin story you can just start a movie where there's Batman I think the audience will go yeah I totally understand Batman I'm good people just like this character and want to see this character let's just make a new version of it I feel like maybe we're getting to a point where enough creators and writers will have grown up with the internet that's going to be good, right? Because there's there's fighting on the internet, but there's also amazing theories like James Bond's name is just a code name and anyone can be it. You yeah, know? Like, well, I, I mean, like, we'll get there. It's going to yeah, be Yeah, at some point, James Bond is not a hundred. So <laughs> we've kind of got it. And also, James Bond's had a cell phone. So yeah. at this point, there isn't a canon to those stories. It's just right. a guy running in a suit. We like guys running in suits. And That's it was all already, it is. Like, it was already a thing <laughs> that the author of the books they're based on had taken his name off of them years before he died. Like, he's like, this is not my character anymore. Just go on with it. It's the Let's way to like go. like things. Yeah. And I like this era where people who grew up as fans of a thing are now making their version of a thing because I, I love cover songs. I don't like it when someone covers a song and just makes it sound exactly like the song. Or, like, I don't care for this Weezer cover of Africa. Like, yeah, good for you. Africa's a great song and you played it well. Like, I'm happy for you. It pretty much just sounds like Toto's Africa, but with Rivers Cuomo singing it. Mm. Whereas, like, I like when an artist takes a version of a song and then, like, redoes it in their own way. Because to me, it feels like music as a conversation. Like, it feels like this is my tone on this thing. Especially when someone can do it in a way that gives it a different vibe to it. A great example is like, when the animals did their cover of House of the Rising Sun and they changed the genders around and it gives like a whole other act. like it was a it was like a folk classic yeah. song about a sex worker at this brothel yeah. and then the animals did it and made it about the like customer and was like oh the depravity of this like life that you're living that brings you down and it's like a really interesting thing or like with Johnny Cash when he covered Hurt and it gave it such like a pathos of like being an old man and being at the end of your life and like the pain of the life you've lived like that's fascinating to me and so seeing that starting to play out in film work like that's why I loved The Last Jedi as a fan because I liked seeing Ryan Johnson as a person who grew up loving Star Wars and being so invested in his mythology going okay but what do I bring to this that like plays on what came before but also builds a new thing and it's so fascinating to me the way that he did it I've watched it a couple times now when it's on like Netflix and stuff and I'm like oh man this is so intricately plotted out and there's so many things that are happening and people have started to like it's gotten like a new 
like appreciation, I think, in home video than it did after the theater release. Because people are noticing things like Ray training in front of this rock, and then all of her moves are mirrored exactly by what Kylo does to Luke later in the thing. And so, like, oh, when man. you watch this, you're like, this is made by a filmmaker who loves this series. And even things that might frustrate me. So I want to see more and more of that. I want to see more things that are made by people who grew up with it as a constant in their life and like have their essentially their fandom and they, they've made it into a movie. It, I do love the what it takes to be a fan and suspending disbelief to love Star Wars, to love mystery science, to love anything nutty or absurd and to let it in. Like you have to believe in the little worlds they're creating. It's still fun to be a fan just as we're. Yeah. We moved from the light to some of the dark. It's a, it, we do it for fun. It should be fun. I, I like things. The whole point. Yeah. Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Caitlin Gill and Riley Silverman for surveying the entire range of pop culture and helping find the most likable ways to like the things we like. That's a sentence I can say, right? I'm, I'm going to go with it. Also, I hope you like our food notes, where you will find more information on the best fans, the worst fans, and the rest of our pop cultural world. You'll also find ways to follow Caitlin and Riley. Uh, they were great, right? Yes, they were, correct. And you can see them both do stand-up. Caitlin Gill has shows October 4th through 7th this week in San Francisco at a great show called Cheaper Than Therapy at the Shelton Theater in San Francisco. And Riley Silverman's stand-up special is online right now. She is one of six comics that are part of a show called Everything is Fine, a new stand-up series on the website Seed and Spark. The URL for that is seedandspark.com slash fine, F-I-N-E. And both Caitlin and Riley's shows and websites and more are all linked very conveniently in the footnotes of the show. And then there is a footnote for Jeopardy.com slash watch because, uh, yeah, you can see me on Jeopardy on October 8th. Uh, it's uh, it's neat, man. I No matter how many times I think it's not real, it is a real thing. And, uh, and, and again, that's about all I can say about it because anything else is a TV spoiler. So watch me there. Other things I can tell you, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. This episode was engineered by Jordan Duffy and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A space that has a pretty good Jeopardy fan community, actually. There's like a lot of fun watching the show, and they are following Alex Trebek dealing with a beard earlier. It's a great time. It also has my Twitter account, at Alex Schmitty. And I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. It's got my show dates, my newsletter, and more. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week. Ooh, it's a big week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.